We've been going through the sermon series that we titled Upside Down Kingdom. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at the upside down ways of Jesus' kingdom that is explained in his Sermon on the Mount. And we found that a person shaped by Christ is going to be different. They're going to be different than a person that's shaped by the values of the world. They're going to be shaped first and foremost by love. That's going to be the distinguishing characteristic of the kingdom-shaped person. Love. Love will drive their thinking. Love will drive their actions, their behavior, their motivations. Practically speaking, the kingdom person will look different in how they handle anger, their desires, marriage, their commitments to other people, their money. These are all things that Jesus touches on in the Sermon on the Mount. Today, we're going to look at how the kingdom-shaped person is going to be different in terms of worry than the rest of the world. I don't know if there is a more relevant topic for the person living in this world, as evidenced by the events of yesterday, than worry, right? We live in what some people have coined this age as the age of worry, right? We are plagued by worry. We are plagued by anxiety. We are plagued by fear, We seem to live in this constant state of anxiousness. We're on edge. And I don't know if, you know, we worry more today than people at other points in human history. I don't know that. But I do know it is very live and well. And I do think there are some factors of our modern society that does contribute to us being such worry warts. One is the pace of change. Our culture is evolving and changing at a faster pace than it ever has before, largely due to the advances in technology. Just think about how now that everybody has a cell phone, how much that has revolutionized how we live. Everything from how we bank to how we buy our stuff, to how we communicate, to how we get from point A to point B in the car, right? It's changed everything. And and society keeps changing at such a fast pace, more than it ever has. And when there is change, there's always uncertainty and there's always unknowns. So when you have change, at least uncertainty and unknowns, you have a mix for worry and anxiety and fear, right? Another, I think, aspect of modern society that contributes to our worry is that we have world news at our fingertips always. And so we hear about the most tragic events from all over the world constantly in real time. And, you know, it's always being updated. You know, you lived 200 years ago. You may not even know what's going on in the rest of Ohio, right? There would be things you wouldn't know about that are going on in your own city. But we know what's going on in North Korea. 
right? Immediately. I think that all contributes to this age of worry. But us kingdom people are to be different. Jesus' invitation is that life in his kingdom that's available to every person everywhere through Jesus, they can be transformed into a person that worries less. Do you believe this can be you? Do you believe this can be you? This is the invitation from Jesus to you. And so, pray with me, and we're going to dive into what Jesus has to say about worry, anxiety, and fear. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you that this amazing invitation, this invitation of a lifetime to live with you in your kingdom now and forever, has been made available to us through the great work of your son in his life, death, and resurrection. Lord, thank you that we can live in your kingdom and experience the transformation that only your spirit can make happen. That your spirit can so transform us in the very deepest parts of our being so that we become people who naturally worry less and less and less. Praise you. Lord, teach us, transform us. There's no way we can become, (laughs) there's no way we can worry less through natural effort and power. I think the world demonstrates that. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, let me read the passage to you here. Matthew 6, 25 through 34. It is up on the screen. Let me get something to drink. I knew it was going to happen. You remember Airplane, the movie? Anybody? Guy? <laughs> Ryan Rodacker remembers Airplane. I'm glad we're connecting. You and me in a room full of people, we're, on, we're just connecting together. The guy who couldn't drink, come on now, go watch it. It's hilarious. All right, here we go. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after these things the Gentiles seek. 
For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God in his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I think it's helpful at this point to distinguish between good, godly concern and worry. Because there's a difference. Good, godly concern. And the the reason why it's good to distinguish, because the Bible uses the same Greek word for both good godly concern and for worry. Good godly concern sees an existing problem or a potential problem and then works to strategically solve it or avoid it. It's focused on producing positive results. It's focused on the solution. It's optimistic. It's intelligent. It's not apathetic, right? It's action-oriented. It is this godly concern that the Apostle Paul had for his churches. He writes about it in 2 Corinthians 11, 28. You can read about it. Some translations actually say anxiety, his anxiety for the churches. It was a good form of anxiety. It was godly concern. Paul also talks that, you know, Timothy, when he was writing to the Philippians, his buddy Timothy had this kind of concern for the people living in Philippi. Philippians 2.20 says, For I have no one like him, Paul is saying of Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. So worry, on the other hand, it's different. It dwells on the size of the problem, and it dwells on all the negative possibilities that could come about as a result. All the negative potential that's there. And so the worry-stricken mind is a mind on repeat, right? Like a cow chewing its cud, it it ruminates on what could go wrong. It rides on the what-if train. You ever ride on the what-if train? It's the most, yeah, it's So a worry-stricken mind is pessimistic, right? It sees the issue as insurmountable, and it seems like, you know, the worst-case scenario. It makes makes you believe the worst-case scenario are not just possible, they're they're probable, is how the worry-stricken mind works. But perhaps the biggest difference between good, godly, healthy concern and worry is that godly concern includes God in the, the equation. Worry does not include God. It, it, exclu- it excludes God from the equation. You see, worry views the problem or the potential problem solely from a human perspective and solely thinks about dealing with the problem with human resources. Right? That's what... That's what worry does. Godly concern, on the other hand, views the problem through the lens of faith. And thinks of dealing with the problem or the threat with supernatural power, wisdom, resources, intelligence. That is a huge difference. 
And I believe it's worry, not good godly concern, that Jesus is addressing here in this passage. And he tells us why worry is futile. He gives us three reasons why worry is always futile. Here it is. Worry is unproductive. It will rob you of the present moment. And it will distract you from from what's really important. Let's look at each one of these. First, worry is unproductive. Jesus said in, in verse 28, So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Worry will cause you, Jesus is saying, to toil and spin. What does toil mean? It means to work extremely hard, incessantly. That's what toil means. What is, think about what spinning is. It is moving quickly in a whirlwind in one place. So if you combine those two images together, you've got somebody that is working incessantly, feverishly, hard, and is getting nowhere. Just like a fidget spinner that spins, 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 all this activity, no, it stays in the same spot, right? Just like a hamster on a wheel. All this activity and energy, and the hamster is still in the same place from which it started. Worry will make you like a hamster on a wheel. Most of the time, this incessant, frantic activity is the activity of the mind, isn't it? It's our thought life. Worry, we, we play, we ride that what-if train in our mind, right? And what, the only optimistic thought that the worry-stricken mind has is this. If I think more and more about this, I will feel better about it. That's a lie. That is a lie. The more you ruminate, the more you become consumed, and the more your mind engages it, the fears just grow bigger. And our brains are so creative, which is a good thing in so many ways, it's not in this area. It's amazing what our brains can think of. That's a lie. Sometimes, though, the feverish, I guess, activity is not just mental, it is physical. But often, if you are acting, if if physical action is based out of worry, anxiety, and fear, it's often unintelligent. It's often just frantic. It just feels like it should do something, and so it just acts and does And it's not out of prudence. It's not out of wisdom. And so when we do get to action, the action is all mixed up. Think, I mean, there's so many biblical examples of this. Think of King Nebuchadnezzar when he gets this dream that worries him. What does he do? He decides to kill all the, like, wise men in his kingdom. Frantic activity. I'm scared out of my mind. Knee-jerk reaction. Think of King Nebuchadnezzar. David and Saul, Saul worried that David is going to take over the popularity and power that he has. Knee-jerk reaction, I'm going to kill David. 
Think of the Jewish religious leaders seeking to kill Jesus, right? He might get our I'm worried Jesus is going to take our influence and, and our power over the people away from us. Let's kill him. Plans that are based out of in fear and anxiety almost always aren't very wise, lack prudence. Worry does not allow you to escape your problems. In fact, I read one author said, worry does not allow you to escape evil. It makes you unfit to cope with it. Or you could say like this, worry does not allow you to escape problems. It makes you unfit to cope with them. And besides, if we engage in worry and we get on that worry train, if the thing we fear does happen, we are suffering twice. We are suffering as we anticipate this bad thing happening. And then when it actually does happen, we suffer again. Some of us have suffered more in this world than what has ever happened to us. Think about that. The song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus... It was, it was talking about, there was a line about all these things that weigh on us because we simply don't take them to God in prayer. We are suffering unnecessarily. Suffering. We, don't, we are suffering beyond what we really need to. That's what worry will do to you. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, 27, which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? In other words, can you add a single hour to your life by worrying? The answer is a big no, not one hour. And actually, there's research that suggests that worry will shorten your lifespan. You can read about it. So actually, it's the opposite, most likely. It will reduce your life. Worry is not only unproductive, it robs you of the present moment. I think that's why Jesus said in, in verse 34, and I think this is what he was getting at, therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. In other words, there's enough important stuff to do today that needs your full focus and attention in order to do well. So be fully present in what you're doing in the moment today. Be fully present with that person that's in front of you. Be fully present with your child that's sitting on your lap. Be fully present with your coworker. Be fully present with your spouse. Be fully present at the task at hand because it needs all of your attention. Don't miss out on today by worrying about tomorrow. Many people have not lived a day in their life. You know why? Because they're always worried about the future. And if that's a habit and a pattern for them, they won't live a day in their life. Because their head's always about what might happen tomorrow. How many times have worries robbed you of the present moment? Even worse yet, how many times has worry propelled you to make mistakes in the moment, to measure wrong, to count wrong, to mishear, to misunderstand, to misjudge, 
to respond in a snippy way because you're so stressed out about tomorrow. Worry is unproductive. It will rob you of the present moment, and it will distract you from what's most important. Let's look at this. What's most important in life? How would you answer that question? What is most important in life? What were we made for? I have emphasized through this series because Jesus emphasizes it in the Sermon on the Mount. The most important thing in all of life is the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. You you may remember from last week that the kingdom of God consists of King Jesus. It consists of his people, those who uh, are following the king. It consists of his kingdom law, which is love. And it consists of a territory, just like any other kingdom, which is the entire globe. To be all about the kingdom is to be all about the king, all about his people, all about seeing his kingdom spread to other hearts and minds that are outside of the kingdom through loving actions, loving words. That's what it means to seek the kingdom first. This should be the top priority of our lives. This is what we should live and breathe for. This is how we will glorify God the most. This is how we will love other people the most. This is how we will find real abundant life for ourselves. Everything else outside of these walls will tell you differently, but that's reality. And until we seek the kingdom first, life is not going to make sense. It was what we were made for. And we will live lives of quiet desperation. That's what's happening outside of these walls. Some people aren't so quiet. Jesus was saying, nothing will distract you from seeking the kingdom of God first more than worry. Nothing will distract you from what's most important than worry. Jesus, he goes on to mention what his audience at that time was most worried about. What were they worried about? Food. They were worried about drink. They were worried about clothes. Now, I don't think Jesus meant this to be an exhaustive list, right? If you uh, go to Mark and you read about Jesus' story about the, the sower, in this story, Jesus tells about this farmer who threw down his seed on good soil, but then the thorns choked out the seed from growing and maturing and bearing fruit. And what Jesus said is, he's like, look, this is how the story relates. Um, God is that one, and I am that one that's throwing the seed, the good news of the kingdom of God being available to all. We're throwing that out. And people are soil, right? We're throwing it out to the people. But the thorns of life, and the thorns of life that Jesus says are, connected to the the thorns in the story, are the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things and the cares of the world. 
That is choking out the seed of the gospel from really taking root in people's lives and then growing and bearing fruit. And so I think if you combine the parable of the sower with this food, drink, and clothes in this passage, what Jesus is saying is that we can worry about just about anything in this life, and it will stop us and distract us from seeking the kingdom of God first. What I have observed is that the dominant thorns of our day that threaten to choke out us seeking the kingdom of God first are work, home ownership, and family. Those are the things. Most of us are not worried about where we're going to get our next meal. We're not worried about that. People in Jesus' day were. Most of us are not worried about if we're going to have enough clothes for this upcoming winter to keep warm. Most of us are not worried about where we're going to find clean water to drink and to bathe in. We are consumed about worry over our career, maintaining and improving our homes so that they look like the Biltmore Estate, and making sure our kids get to do every stinking thing under the sun. And it's choking us. It is choking, 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 choking us. If we focus at all on the kingdom of God, it's an afterthought. It gets thrown into any little margin we have, which is basically nothing. We are living backwards. We must seek Jesus first. His people, his law of love, and his kingdom expanding to others. That should be our starting point. That should be what determines where we work and what we do for work. That should determine where we live and what house we buy. That should determine what our kids do and what they don't do. That should determine what we say yes to. That should determine what we say no to. That is the starting point. Should determine how we spend our money, our time. But the large majority of people that I encounter, and of course this is a problem for me too, is that they are not making decisions this way. Don't you see that the reason why life is so stressful and confusing is because we're not seeking the kingdom of God first? Seeking the kingdom of God first simplifies our life. Because it's a filter by which we can make all of our decisions through. If we don't have that filter, if we don't have that to sift all of our decisions through, how do we know what the right thing is? The kingdom of God should act like our GPS. Do you have a plan to pursue the king, his people, his kingdom's expansion? Do you have a plan to put on his righteous ways of love? Now, here's what people are going to be tempted to say to all of what I just said about seeking the kingdom of God first. It's the same thing that happened to Jesus and his audience. And, of course, Jesus being the master teacher, he, would, he knew that people were going to be thinking this. Can you, so this is the thought. Can I really live this way? Can I really live this way. I mean, if I live this way, won't my home fall apart? 
And won't my kids be underdeveloped and be behind all the other kids and never get a good job or marry a good person or have anything nice? Can I really stop having my kids do everything? Is this really possible? It, I mean, if I stop putting so much attention into my job, I mean, won't I just get fired and it all fall apart? And I'm going to ride on the what-if train, and then I can't feed my family, and then what? My wife divorces me because I don't provide, and I mean, we go all over, don't we? You know what Jesus' words of compassion are to you? Oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. That's not meant to be a shaming thing. This is compassion. Oh, you of little faith. Don't you know who your father is? Don't you know who your father is? He is the one that feeds the birds of the air. Ten years ago, two guys, they tried to (laughs) tally up the number of birds that are on planet Earth. (laughs) Who gets that idea? That's how I'm going to spend my time. If he was seeking first the kingdom of God, no, it's fine. (laughs) Actually, who knows? They could be awesome Christian men, and it's just causing them to just like, God is an amazing father. Because guess what? There are 200 to 400 estimated billion birds. God cares for each one of them. They don't have storage units, <laughs> right? Because God supplies their needs when they have them. They're not fretting. And if God cares for the birds who, in his eyes, aren't as valuable as you and me, and how about the lilies of the field? I looked up. There's 80 to 100 species of lilies and who knows? Maybe there'll be a crazy person that wants to try and figure out how many lilies are on planet Earth. But he makes God cares for each one of them. Each one of them is dressed to the nines. How beautiful they are. They neither toil nor spin. And so when you consider how much concern God the Father has for things that don't have nearly as much value as you made in his image... It's almost as if Jesus is saying, God is worried about you, so you don't have to worry. And I would say, it's probably more like God has great, godly, good, healthy concern for you. And so you don't have to worry. Isn't that what the Apostle Peter was getting at when he said in 1 Peter 5, 7? Cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Knowing God as your father is the antidote to your worry. It is. It's the only way you're truly in the depth of your heart will be able to worry less. And it can't just be mere theological knowledge. That's why you you may still be struggling with this. Because it's just something you know in your head and not in your heart. We must also experience firsthand God's character, his power, his faithfulness as we obediently seek the kingdom first. 
That's how it's going to get in our bones. Because as we experience him supplying our needs and coming through when we need him to come through, our faith in him increases and our worry starts to decrease. That's the only way we're going to be transformed in this area. Here's the thing. But if we remain consumed with meeting all of our own needs, we are going to experience very little of God's power. And we're going to feel as if our welfare is on our shoulders. And it will, be, it will prove to be a burden that will crush us. And that's why worry is ultimately a form of pride. Worry is a form of pride. You see, when we worry, what we're saying is, God, I can't trust you. And so I got to fret. I got to work feverishly. I've got to toil and spend because if I don't, it's all going to fall apart and I won't be taken care of. Worry is a form of pride. I think that's also why the Apostle Peter, when he said, you know, cast your care on God uh, because he cares for you. What does he say before that? What does he say before that? He says, you have to submit yourself humbly to him. You have to let go of your pride that says, I can only trust myself and God can't be trusted. You have to wave that white flag of surrender. As the message says, the only way you're going to get on your feet is if you get on your knees before Jesus. And guess what? If we think our welfare is all on our shoulders, we're going to be the most stingy people around. Because what if we need that thing in our garage someday? Right? What, what if I need that outfit? Right? What if I need this money? I mean, all, it's all on me. It's all on me. I got to provide. I got to take care of myself. The only way you're going to be an extravagant giver is if you believe you got a father in heaven whose storehouse of resources is overflowing. Only way you're going to be able to give freely. It's the only way you're going to be able to give to it until it hurts, and then give until it and then give more. It's the only way. It's the only way you're not going to be tight-fisted with your time, your resources, your money. So the world's, and I'll close. I'll wrap up with this. The world's. Strategy for overcoming worry is horrible. This is what the world will tell you. Don't worry, be happy. <laughs> How on earth is that helpful? Like you're supposed to like trick your brain and your heart into being peaceful? That doesn't work. That's bad advice. Might be a fun song, right? <laughs> That's bad advice. Look. Happiness has to be rooted in something. Peace has to be rooted in something. It can't just exist by itself. 
The other advice is that the world will give you is just don't think about worst case scenarios, right? Just, just, don't, just don't ride on the what if train, which is good advice, but it only helps so much. You know, it'll tell you, like, don't ride on the what if train because chances are what, what you're worried about probably won't happen, right? You've heard this advice, I'm sure. But what happens when it does happen? What do you do with that? And we know we live in a world where bad things happen, even to us Christians. Look at what just happened yesterday. So how do we not worry when bad things really do happen? This is the answer, I believe. You have to believe, and you have to know in your heart, not just in your mind, that God is your good father that will give you what you need even if the worst were to happen. And the reason you can't imagine right now getting through whatever you fear the most, the reason why you can't imagine getting through it because you do not yet have the grace to get through it because you're not in it. God doesn't give it to us in advance. It comes when we need it the most and when we're actually going through those circumstances. We must believe that even if the worst would happen, God's grace would be sufficient. We, although wouldn't be painless, we would get through it. Psalm 27. Um, Let me grab a Bible real quick. And I promise I'm done. I'm just going to, this is so good. David in Psalm 27 that was read by Dave this morning. David, he's imagining the worst possible scenarios, right? He's got an army against them. There's war happening around them. People are seeking to kill him. His parents have abandoned him. And he writes this. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He shall strengthen your heart. Be of good courage. Um, There's some other verses in here. He says, um, in the beginning, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. In this I will be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. I want to mention this because, look, practically speaking, the way that we experience God as our Father is as we dwell with him, as we seek him, and as we behold his beauty. And so, if you want to become a person that worries less, You've got to engage God in the secret place where you dwell with him. You behold his beauty. 
and you seek his face. I have practical strategies for doing that. If that's something you struggle with, I can help you with that. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you desire for us not to be stressed out, toiling and spinning and worrying about the cares of this life, fretting and riding the what-if train, that you desire for us to live freely and lightly and to even go through very difficult circumstances with strength and power. Lord, I pray that this idea of you being our Father, that this wouldn't be mere theological knowledge that we hold in our brains, but it is something that we experience in a very deep way as we seek and dwell with you in the secret place, beholding your glory. As we seek you in your kingdom first, as we take steps of faith and obedience and see you supplying our needs and really coming through, especially when we are willing to step out and put ourselves in situations where the only way we can be successful is if you come through. Lord, give us this experiential faith. Lord, thank you that you are patient with us. You are gracious to us. And these words are not meant to shame or to make people feel guilty. It's your words are given because you desire us to have abundant life. And you love us so much. And that is the motivation behind your teaching. Lord, I pray that we would become uh, those people who are rest, who rest fully in you, who worry less and less and less as you continually transform us into your likeness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.